You're listening to audio from Praxis Church Kelowna. Praxis is a new church plant that exists to follow Jesus and make him known. If you're interested in finding out more or joining us in person, go to praxischurch.ca. Our reading this morning comes from 1 Timothy 4, 6 through 16. It says, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortion, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Yeah, I was actually up here uh, in November, um, uh, and I, I left here Sunday afternoon, and that was the day the slides happened, and, uh, and so I actually didn't get home until Wednesday, because uh, I stayed a night in Merritt, and then uh, Merritt had their flood, and they kicked everybody out who wasn't a resident of Merritt out of all the hotels, and so... I tried to drive back through Whistler and almost got in a slide, caught in a slide there. Actually had to do a U-turn on the highway um, and uh, sort of get chased away from it. And then uh, went back to Kamloops, spent two nights in Kamloops, tried to fly to Kamloops, but they were charging a thousand bucks a flight from Kamloops to Vancouver and thought, that's not, that's not worth it. And so... Um, uh, ended up driving down through the States uh, and finally got home Wednesday night. So I told Josh, if I come back here, I'm only coming back in the summer. I'm not coming back. I'm not coming back when it's raining ever again. And, um, and I mean this with all of my heart. Uh, there is no more beautiful place than Kelowna in the summer. And I mean that. I love, I, I'm not going to give you the winter, uh, but I will give you the summer. There's nothing greater than Kelowna in the Summer, I think Maui in the winter would be maybe even a little bit better than this place, but, uh, but it's great to be with you. It is, I love hearing about the things that are going on at Praxis, um, just fired up, and, uh, and man, the stories that we're hearing are, are so good, and so we do, with great joy, uh, support you, uh, yes, with some money, but more importantly, with uh, with prayer and we tell people if they're moving to Kelowna, we have a church that you need to be a part of that's doing great things and I'm, I'm so encouraged by all the things that I'm hearing and I'm excited to be able to come and sort of graft in with this series on First Timothy. Good for you for going through this, 
letter together, uh, I, I, I followed the example, or I guess I didn't really follow the example of Josh, but we did the same thing early on uh, when I planted Westside to go through 1 Timothy, uh, because this is Paul's sweet letter, two letters to Timothy and Titus, just sharing with these young pastors, this is what you need to be about. This is what the church needs to be about. You don't have to guess. You don't have to conjure up something new. And this teaching that Paul gave Timothy is obviously relevant to us because it is God's inspired word to us. You've heard it read already. <clears throat> Thank you for that. What I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to kind of walk through just by verse by verse with you, if that's okay. But um, before I do that, let me stop and pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, <clears throat> uh, what we know not, uh, teach us. Uh, what we have not, uh, please give us. And, and what we are not, uh, please change us uh, by your spirit and the word that your spirit has given us today. And I pray for these things in Jesus' name. Uh, amen. If you like underlining things in your Bible like me or highlighting things, I want you to put your eyes in the text and underline the phrase in verse 7. You can find it there where Paul writes, train yourself for godliness. It is the key exhortation uh, in this passage. Uh, everything leads up to it or points back, back to it. In verse 9 when Paul writes, the, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. He's talking about this exhortation to train yourself in godliness. He's saying that this saying is trustworthy and you should accept it fully. Don't, don't debate it. Later in verse 10 when he writes, to this end, he is referring to godliness, which he says in verse 8, holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now, this emphasis on godliness shouldn't be a surprise to you if you've been here throughout this series because the theme of godliness is a key one in this, in this letter. Let me just remind you of some things that Paul has already said about godliness. He actually begins, if you just hang a left and go back to chapter 1 in your Bibles, by talking about the antithesis of godliness. If you take a look at Verse 9, chapter 1, where he says, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners. So he mentions ungodliness there. But if you go one chapter to the right, chapter 2, verse 2, we are called there to lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly, there it is, and dignified in every way. And then we see in chapter 2, just a few verses later in verse 10, speaking specifically to women in that text, about women who profess godliness. <coughs> Excuse me. In chapter 3, verse 16, he refers to godliness. I won't take you there. I'm going to go back there in just a minute and look at it in greater detail. But then he hits godliness again here in chapter 4 a couple of times. But then when you get to chapter 6, and you'll be there uh, uh, very, very soon, he, he mentions godliness, godliness a couple of times. In verse 3, he mentions a teaching that accords with godliness. In verse 5, imagining that godliness is a means of gain, that there are some that misunderstand godliness. But then in verse 6, talks about godliness with contentment. And then in verse 11, he calls us to pursue righteousness and godliness. So godliness is a big deal to Paul. Uh, godliness matters to Paul. 
And it should be a big deal to us. Uh, and it should matter to us as well. Um, it also tells us that Paul's not merely uh, interested in our salvation only, but in what takes place thereafter. He's really interested in our, our godliness. So let's, let's dig deep. Uh, and perhaps you've already addressed a little bit, so this may just be a reminder of things that you've already seen, but let's ask a couple of questions. First off, what is godliness? What are we talking about? Well, I, I'll put a definition, a real simple definition of godliness on the screen, but godliness, and there are other definitions that you could give, but I think this one is helpful. Godliness, by definition, means having a right or a proper or a good or an accurate attitude and response, both are important, attitude and response to God, um, Helpful de definition. Another commentator adds and writes that godliness is a preoccupation with God that gets manifested, gets fleshed out, gets lived out in right realities. And I think we get this from a very practical relational standpoint. You ever been infatuated with someone? Isn't it great? You know that infatuation stage? Butterflies? Can't get enough of the person, want to be with them all the time, can't think about anything else other than, than that person. Uh, I've been married 28 years. Um, I remember when I first started dating Nicole, I was working as a youth guy in a church in Coquitlam. She was living in Tawasson. And so we're about 40 kilometers away. Always wanted to be with her. Always wanted just to hang with her. Always thought about her. And I, I heard that she was going to some event at her church um, and so I decided to drive the 40 kilometers, not to see her, just to go into the parking lot and leave a rose and a card for her on the windshield. Isn't that great? That's great, right? That's awesome. Today, I can barely get off the couch right, and, and fetch anything for her. It's really sad. But that's infatuation. Godliness is being infatuated with God. And, and wanting nothing more than to draw close to him and please him. But how does one attain it? How does one attain godliness? Really, this is a really important question uh, when we talk about godliness because when we talk about it, we're not talking about moralism. Uh, oftentimes, godliness gets confused with moralism. Now, are morals connected, ethics, right living connected to godliness? Sure. If, if you make sure that you understand that they are, those morals, those ethics, those right things that we do are to be spurred by something greater than it. So back to the question, how do you attain godliness? Well, the Bible's answer is that godliness is birthed out of an inner attitude, or if you like, a heart change that comes by way of a relationship with Jesus. Why do I say that? Well, let me take you to 2 Peter. We'll put it on the screen. 2 Peter 1.3. Peter describes it this way. He writes, God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through really important word, through is a really important word in the New Testament. Every time you read it, underline that word, really important word, through him, through the knowledge of him, who's him? Jesus. 
through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So there's our answer. How do we attain godliness? Godliness is a gift of God. It's been granted to us by God through our knowledge of Jesus. Not knowledge of Jesus as information, but knowledge of Jesus as, as relationship. Meaning what? Practice. Meaning what about godliness? Meaning you and I can't do it. We can't produce it. We can't achieve it. It's granted to us. It's been graced to us by God through Jesus in Jesus. Cleanliness is not next to godliness. Jesus <laughs> is next to godliness. In fact, I'll take it a step further, and this is where I'm going to take you back to chapter 3, verse 16. Jesus is godliness. Take a look at verse 13, or 16 of chapter 3. Just to prove this to you that I'm not making things up. Paul writes there, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. There's our word. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That's the gospel. That's the Coles Notes version of the gospel. But the first part of the verse is really important. Jesus is the mystery of godliness. So how do we attain godliness? Give your lives to Jesus. That's how. You can be religious without Jesus. You can be moral without Jesus. You can be a great neighbor without Jesus, but you can't be godly without Jesus, and you need to be godly for only the godly inherit eternal life. Good, nice, moral, religious people don't inherit eternal life. Only the godly inherit eternal life. Only the pure in heart will see God. So, so we need to be godly, which means what? We need Jesus. We need to put on Jesus. But there's a spiritual conundrum <laughs> in all of this. And the spiritual conundrum or hiccup or, or difficulty or struggle is this. If godliness is granted by God and is only attainable through Jesus, then why are we instructed in verse 7 to train ourselves for godliness? And, and why? If you go over to chapter 6, I already took you there in verse 11, why are we called to pursue it? Why pursue? Why do we need to pursue what we already have? You see the spiritual difficulty conundrum in this? So, so which is, is it given to me, grace to me by Jesus, or is it something I need to pursue, something I need to train myself up in? Let me see if I can answer by taking you to a passage in, in 2 Corinthians 5. Well-known passage, we'll put it on the screen. But it's probably not a passage as appreciated as much as it should be. Uh, the great reformer, Martin Luther, called this part of chapter 5 of, of 2 Corinthians a, a description of the great exchange that takes place in our lives when we come to Jesus. That's a whole other sermon and topic, but really important, beautiful text. Paul writes in verses 17 and 18, If anyone is in Christ, in Christ meaning you're a Christian, you've put on Christ, so if anyone is in Christ, he, she, is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, look. Paul's saying, stand up, notice this. The new has come. And then he says, all of this is from God. That's what Peter said. It's been granted by God. All of this is from God. So what 
Paul is telling us, and here's why we need to appreciate this text more than we probably should, but it's because what Paul is saying is that at salvation, we aren't merely forgiven. We're changed. We are, he says, a new creation. Look, he says, behold, take notice. The old has passed away and the new has come. But new what? New what? New everything. New heart. New identity. New community. New desires. New passions. New affections. New pursuits, new power, new creation. And it's in this newness, granted by God through Jesus, that we are called and enabled to live out who we now are in Christ. Spiritual litmus test, okay? Test for all of us. Let's check our hearts. What are your deepest desires? What are your deepest desires? Do you yearn for righteousness? Do you love Jesus with a love indescribable even though you don't see him? Do you crave growing in your knowledge of God? Do the sins that you used to laugh about now grieve you? That's evidence of the new you. This doesn't mean you won't have conflicting desires. We will. We all do. But what are your deepest ones? What are your deepest ones? Is Jesus at the root of them? Do you, do you just desire to put roses on the windshield of Jesus' car? You know what I mean? Just because you can't get enough of them? Do you confess that Jesus is Lord? Do you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? And I mean, do you really believe it? Like, you really believe it, but you don't only believe it, you want to live your life in light of it. Hear me, Praxis, that has been granted to you by God. That's his grace on your life. That's godliness in you, through Jesus. That's the Spirit's work. You know why I know it's not the flesh work? Because the flesh opposes the things of the Spirit. That's evidence of the Spirit in you. That's the Holy Spirit testifying to your spirit that you're a child of God. That's his work in you. And what Paul is saying is that now that that has happened internally, work it out in your life. Train yourself up in it. Keep on pursuing it. Work out what God's worked in. How? So I'm going to ask a few questions. How? Well, at the very least, through the spiritual disciplines, prayer, Bible study, meditation, serving, confessing, giving, attending, what you're doing now, worshiping, Boy, that worship was good, man. The first set, it was good. A couple of songs I've never heard before, and I'm older than the Old Testament. Mortifying, 
fasting. But understand, spiritual disciplines aren't the end. They're not the end. They're, They're a means to the end. Spiritual disciplines age you. They mature you, help you draw close to God and abide in Christ and live as God has called you to live, to live godly because you are godly in Jesus. All of this is the basis for what Paul writes in verse 8. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. You you can give a whole sermon on this one verse. Um, First off, uh, working out is good. Paul writes that here. I've read that. Um, working out is good. It's, it's, it's good for you. And Paul agrees with this. In life, in this life, it has some value because we are physical beings. But spiritual training, training in godliness, holds promise in the present life and in the, the life to come. Pr- promise in the present life how? What promise does godliness have for us now? Well, you know what it doesn't promise? Health. Can't promise you health. Doesn't promise wealth, godliness, doesn't promise health or wealth in this present. You know what it also doesn't promise? You could be the most godly person, loving Jesus, here, training yourself up, man. And it doesn't promise you a good name, perhaps just the opposite. But do you know what it does promise now, godliness now? Peace with God. Peace in your spirit. Contentment. Now, happiness of spirit. That's what it promises us now. Isn't that true? When you're walking closely with Jesus, and even though life might be spiraling out out of control, you're walking closely with Jesus, and you just feel this peace, Beyond comprehension, contentment. That's what it promises now. What about the life to come? How does it promise? What promises things to us now and for the life to come? Like what? Well, it it holds promise for the life to come because what we do now matters in what comes next. Because our godliness will be rewarded. What what that looks like, I don't know. We can guess. It, It also holds promise for the life to come because it's in our pursuit of Godliness now that assures us that the life to come is ours already. Like if you want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus now, hold on to that because that's a demonstration that you've already entered eternal life. Do you see how beautiful this is? It's just God's grace bringing such assurance to us. But there's something else connected to godliness that I would be amiss if I didn't address. It takes place, Paul addresses it in the next letter, 2 Timothy. We'll put it on the screen for you. But Paul writes in in chapter 3, verse 12, Indeed, all who, who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Why? Because godliness invites persecution as we live as exiles here. Uh, This is not our home. And, And there is a God of this age on a leash, as it were, who wars against us, and so persecution comes. 
And yet godliness not only invites persecution, but it grants us the power to walk through it and use it for growth in Christ-likeness. We are more than overcomers. We use those things that come against us to grow in Christ. So godliness in that way has value in every way. It's used all over the place. Let's pick things up and read verses 9 and 10. You guys good? You good? You hanging with me, man? Okay, good. I was just in California. I'm tanned. I look good up here. look good up here. You're very, you're very lucky people. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm, I'm really kidding. Believe me. Believe me. Verses 9 and 10. The saying is trustworthy. What, what we just talked about. No need to go over verse 9. And deserving of full acceptance. So accept it fully. Don't doubt it. Accept it fully. That's what Paul is saying. For, verse 10, to this end we toil and strive. What, what end? Godliness. And the promises it has attached to it here and next. Because we have our hope set on the living God. Not a dead God, a living God. Who is the savior of all people. Especially of those who believe. Um, this has caused confusion for some. This last part of verse Verse 10, the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. The confusion comes is, is, well, does this mean that Jesus is the Savior of all? Everybody will be saved. Is that what it's saying? Um, well, it doesn't mean that. Uh, it, it doesn't mean that all people are saved by Jesus, but that Jesus is the only way to be saved. And in that way, he is the Savior and the only Savior of all people. A simple illustration, a ship is going down, there's only one lifeboat in the water, no other options, the, the boat is, that boat is the only means of salvation, but will only save those who climb aboard. So too with Jesus. Uh, if you've ever studied the book of Acts, there's this great scene in Acts 16 where Paul and Silas are in the Philippian jail, earthquake comes, shackles, doors open, shackles fall off, but they stay there. Uh, the jailer has fallen asleep, wakes up, sees what's going on. He thinks he should just take his life because obviously people have escaped. But before he does that, Paul and Silas cry out, don't do it, don't do it, because sometimes, sometimes God puts us in places like prison so that others can come to Christ, which is what takes place. The jailer comes to Paul and Silas and asks them, what must they do to be saved? Paul and Silas reply, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. The only way to be saved is to believe in the Lord Jesus, but only those who believe in the Lord Jesus will be saved. Do you believe in Jesus and see him as Lord? Verse 11. Command and teach these things. Just stop there. Short little verse. What things? The teaching regarding godliness. Uh, this doubles down uh, on what Paul has already said to Timothy in verse 6. I didn't look at verse 6, but in verse 6, he says, If you put these things, there's the phrase again, before the brothers, sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So command and teach these things. Why command them? Command sounds harsh. Teaching sounds nice. But why command? Well, I, it can sound kind of rough, but both are necessary. Uh, command has the idea of calling people to submit to an authority. But what authority are they being called to submit to? 
Well, well not Timothy's. The authority they're being called to submit to is, is this authority, God's word. Command and teach these things. And Timothy, you can command these things because these are the words of God, not your words. Um, so command and teach them um, because they come from God. And yet an issue has arisen in this church that Paul addresses in verse 12. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. How old is Timothy? Pretty young. People guess. Mid-20s, maybe late-20s, early 30s. He, he started following, uh, he joined up with Paul on Paul's second missionary journey. Some in his teens, but some years have gone by now. But he's still young, but now he's pastoring the church in Ephesus. He's pastoring, he's teaching, he's commanding. He's a young guy. And some, it seems, are looking down on Timothy because he's young, perhaps discounting him because, hey, I'm older than you. I've been around the block a few more times than you have, Timothy. Who are you to command me, Timothy? Paul's response to Timothy, don't let anyone despise you for your youth, but set an example for them in five ways. In your speech, so watch how you talk, watch what you say in your conduct. Live a good life. Watch what you do and don't do. In your love, loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. In your faith. See, the thing about young, young people in ministry is, in my experience, and if, if, I know you're, all of you are younger than me, but if you're young in ministry, what the, the tendency can be that you flame out fast. You chase the next new thing. Paul's instructed to Timothy, don't be that guy. Purity, this is the inside of you. What you think about, who you are when no one else is around. What Paul is telling Timothy is, <laughs> is to be the Christian you want them to be. That's always the best response when we come into conflict in the church. But please hear the twofold call that Paul gives Timothy here. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but don't allow your youth to be an excuse for not being an example setter. Your youth is no excuse to not set an example for all the believers in these five five ways. Speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity are vitally Vitally important, but they're not age-dependent. Josiah, remember King Josiah? Eight years old when he became king and headed up one of the greatest revivals in the history of Israel at 26. David was an adolescent when, adolescent when he took on, on Goliath. He stepped out in faith. He set an example to everyone in faith, and he took out Goliath. In response to God's call on him, Jeremiah responds in Jeremiah 1.6, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. Mary was chosen as a young teenage girl to bear Jesus. Throughout the church's history, some of the most prominent leaders, teachers, and theologians were young when they started. John Calvin was in his 20s when he wrote his systematic theology. One of the greatest preachers of all time, Charles Spurgeon, began preaching at 17. They called him the boy preacher. Josh Duell, he's 19 years old. 
He's 19 years old. Unbelievable. I know you don't. Rebecca's 14. Rebecca's 14. In the lead up to plan, when I planted my first church, in the lead, I was doing college ministry. I hated it. I was doing college ministry, doing college ministry in this big church just outside of Vancouver. And the reason why I hated it is because these college students were sequestered. They just hung out by themselves. And as I looked around this group, and I only worked with them for a couple of years, I just had to get out of there. Working with them, I thought, these people love Jesus more than most. They know the Bible more than most. They're living by faith more than most. Um, they have a heart for the lost more than most. And I thought, Man, if they could give leadership, more just sequestered, that'd be a good church. Are years helpful to us? Can be. And they should be. But it depends on how you use them. I know a lot of 50-year-olds and 60-year-old Christians in the church who haven't spent the decades training themselves for godliness. And sadly, those years have been little help at all. Godliness doesn't come with age. Godliness comes with the pursuit of Jesus. Verse 13, a couple more. Then you can get rid of me. Oh, there's, no, there's an 11. Then you can get rid of me. Verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Uh, you are in a series called Instructions for the Church. So here are the apostolic instructions for you praxis from the Apostle Paul. The church is to read the scriptures. The church is to teach the scriptures. The church is to exhort the scriptures. Teaching is a systematic unpacking of the scriptures. Exhortation speaks of the call to apply it. Those who hear my words, Jesus says, and build their lives upon it, they are building their lives upon the rock. And when the storms come, that house, that life will stand, stand the test. So this is what the scripture says. This is what the difference it should mean to your life and mine. This is, again, the hearing and doing it. So read it, teach it, and exhort it. But there's something here that's, and I, I'm, I'm almost just going to preach to... to, to to Josh here, but I'm preaching to all of you. But I want you to see something that's very subtle here, but so important. In this letter, and I know my time is running out. In this letter, one of the reasons why Paul writes it to Timothy, who's the pastor there, is he has to address some people who had arisen from within the church and are teaching false doctrine. I mean, go all the way back, real quick. Go back to chapter 1. Take a look at verses Three and four. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any do different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths, endless genealogies, etc., etc. But now in our text in chapter four, he doubles down and he says to Timothy, command these things, teach these things, exhort these things, do the hard work of ministry, Timothy. Don't let people discount you because you're young. But hear what he says in verse 13. In light of this, how sh what should you do instead? In light of all of the crap that is going on in your church, how should you respond? His answer is, teach the Bible. 
Just teach it. Read it, teach it, exhort it. Later in 2 Timothy, preach it. In season and out of season because why? It is the Spirit-inspired Word of God and it always profits you and your listeners when you do. Don't get involved in silly myths. Don't chase the next new thing. Don't get caught up in things. Don't get distracted. Teach the Bible. That's his answer. That's his counsel. Our churches need to remember this, man. We need to hear this. And you as the body need to encourage your leadership. Just keep on teaching it. Keep on teaching it. Because it's not your words, it's the word of God. And then Paul adds in verse 14, do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Um, Elders don't give gifts. Only the Holy Spirit gives gifts. What the elders do and what Paul is reminding Timothy of here is is the affirmation of gifts. What, What Paul is doing here, which is really precious and sweet, is he's reminding Timothy of his commissioning. How when he was commissioned to be a pastor, the elders came alongside of him, laid their hands on him, commissioned, prayed for him, affirmed him, pointed out where they saw the Spirit's gifting in him. That's what this this verse is about. And I love the sweetness of Paul here. Because I think what Paul is doing is he's coming along very pastorally to a guy that probably was going through a difficult time. It's tough when people despise you in ministry, right? When you're taking shots. It's tough when what you've been charged to by the Apostle Paul is to step into the grill of of certain people who are teaching false doctrine and you got to command them to be quiet. It's tough, man. When you're in your 20s and they're in their 50s and 60s. And so what he's doing is keep on keeping on, Timothy. Remember that commissioning, Timothy? Remember what the elders said to you, Timothy? And don't, don't forget that call, especially when people are hammering you and causing you to question yourself. And even though they aren't setting any kind of example for you, you, Timothy, set an example for them. And speech, conduct, love, faith, and, and purity, which brings us finally to <laughs> two of the most sobering verses in the Bible. And I have to close, I not have to close, I get to close with them but we have to tackle it. Um, So let me begin wrapping up my time with you by reading what, especially as a pastor, but for all of us, two very sobering, sobering verses. Paul ends by writing, practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Three challenges. First, don't be quick to give up on your spiritual gift. Paul challenges Timothy to practice and immerse himself in what he was doing so that people would see his progress. Praxis, we all have different gifts. 
Hear the instruction to you, the church. Do not neglect them, but practice them and immerse yourself in them. Second challenge, your life and your teaching are key. Knowing truth is important, but what we know must be backed up by how we live. This is for all of us. Third challenge. Paul ends by saying that if Timothy persists in this, he will save both his hearers and himself. What? Help me out with that. Well, let me close by neat-nicking verse 16 with you. And I have to neat-nick it. We have to tear it apart. And I'll do this in a couple of minutes. First off, let's neat-nick it by noticing the three commands just in verse 16 and the two promises that Paul gives. The first command is, Timothy, watch yourself. Watch yourself. The second command is, watch his teaching. The third command is that he must persist in this, meaning keep on watching yourself, keep on watching your teaching, and never think that you've ever arrived. Be be diligent in this. Keep on keeping on. There's never a time where you go, that's it, I'm good. So those are the three commands. The two promises, the first is that in doing this, he will save himself. That's a promise. The second promise is that in doing this, he will save his hearers. Okay, what? What are you talking about? Well, John Piper, and and it's not a sermon uh, unless John Piper is quoted at least once in it, my boy, uh, John, he comments, he's my homie, uh, John comments on on this verse, and he sums it up this way, and you can read it on on the screen. He sums up verse 16 by writing, A pastor's untiring moral vigilance over his life and his unwavering theological vigilance over his doctrine are the means of grace appointed by God for his own salvation and the salvation of his people. See, the reality is the eternal salvation of a pastor and his people is at stake in the holiness of his life and the truthfulness of his teaching. That's what verse 16 says. And if a pastor grows lax in his attention to personal holiness or carelessness in his teaching, he will very very likely pay with his life and take many of his people with him to hell. See how this is so sobering? There's been a lot of pastors that have flamed out in the last five or six years. There, there are, and it's always easy to throw stones, always, so I want to be very careful because I love the local church, but there are pastors getting up in pulpits today saying to people, you are doing okay, you will be okay before God when the scripture says they're not. Nothing scares me more than that thought and idea. But, but the pushback I know comes, well, isn't this a contradiction that we are saved by grace through faith and, and not by works so that no one may boast? A hundred times, yes. 
We are saved by grace through faith, and it is a free gift of God. But that text in, in Ephesians 2, 8, 8 and 9 uh, is, is really just a confirmation um, in, in what we read in the next verse. We are also God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. In them, And so when a pastor watches himself in his teaching and, and walks in those good works prepared for him by God, he proves himself to be a workmanship of God and a new creature in Christ. But when a pastor grows lax in his personal holiness and forsakes the, the doctrine he received, that good doctrine, he shows himself that he is not the workmanship of God. He is not a new creature in Christ and his faith is in vain. And when that happens, the effects can be so great on the church. So great. We need to respond. As we respond, I, I, I want to uh, close by reminding you that these aren't just words exclusive to pastors. This is a word to all of us. We need to persist. We need to persevere. We need to toil. We need to strive. We need to teach. We need to exhort. We need to command. We need to train. We need to pursue. We need to practice by way of the strength that God provides us in Christ Jesus. Some of us here right now may feel like packing it in. Some of you discouraged, feeling defeated. I get it. But we need to carry on and we need to set our eyes on Jesus and we need to persist. We need to persist in our marriages, don't we? We need to persist in our parenting. We need to persist in our ministries and so on. And we need to do these things, not because we are gonna attain something that isn't ours now, but because we've attained it already in Christ. Praxis, be holy because you are holy. Be, be godly because you are already in Christ.